Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Climbing the Ivy on the Fan Sided Network. This is your host, Alex Pat, alongside Adam McGinnis. We have a special little show for you today. Once again, we've brought on our site expert, Jacob Meisner, on. He is going to talk a little bit about Carrie Wood in a very fun interview he did. So stick around. We're going to have some fun tonight. First of all, Adam, my regular co-host, how you doing? Fantastic. Good. Jake Meisner, our great fearless leader, how are you this evening? I am wonderful. How are you, Alex? Fine. Hanging in there, you know, working hard and hardly playing because there ain't much playing to do these days, but hanging in there as always. Um, hey, hey, Adam, a question for you. Uh, Shoot. Did you uh, get flooded this weekend in Nebraska or wherever you live? No, uh, my my area of Nebraska, we did not get hit very hard. Uh, it was pretty tame here, but I, I've seen I've seen some pictures that some other people were not so fortunate. Yeah, lucky you, because we here in Chicago, uh, it looked like uh, Noah's flood, basically 2.0. Yeah, I saw <laughs> I saw one of the pictures you posted that that looked pretty rough. It was. Uh, Jake, you were telling me before the show you had some uh, flooding to deal with yourself. Yeah, so our basement has a storage area that is connected to a window well. And it had rained so much, the gutters were overflowing into the flower beds, which were then dumping into the window wells. So all I could think about was I had to keep the water in the storage area and away from the rest of the finished portion of the basement, which is literally a living, breathing Cubs museum with all my memorabilia. So I got very efficient at a one-man bucket brigade. Um, I think I fixed everything, so we'll be good when it rains again for another week. But the important thing is none of my Cubs memorabilia was damaged, and now the storage area is far cleaner than it's ever been. I'll tell you what, last year we did have some flooding issues here in my area. And, man, you you drive all over town and – everyone's got a pump coming out of their basement. It's it's pretty common knowledge in this town now that you don't buy a house that has big basements or man cave areas because they they flood so easily. I I don't envy anyone who has to deal with that all the time. Elmhurst is very susceptible to flooding so much that the city spent a ton of money the past few years building these big retentions because we have a big stone quarry where a lot of it would just drain into, but even the the pumps to the stone quarry weren't enough, so sections of neighborhoods would be completely submerged. But even with the retentions, which did help a lot this weekend, you still have areas looking like uh, the old Wrigley Field crown drainage system. You guys remember that? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I can literally picture it in my mind. The range is pouring down from there yeah it was uh it was funny i saw recently a picture of anthony rizzo going down the old tunnel back in like 2012 uh before they did another fix to the ballpark turf and this was after they took out the first crown drainage which was even worse but he was walking through a tunnel with like water up to his knees it looked like a scene from titanic but that's honestly something that a lot of people had to go through Either way, Adam, you're lucky, and if there was any baseball this weekend, it would have been canceled for sure. I mean, especially towards the end of the weekend when it really downpoured. 
By the way, the Cubs, I think, would have been playing the right now. I think the Cubs should be playing the Pirates in Pittsburgh, just in case you were wondering. That's just sad to think about, honestly. It is. It is sad. So let's not be sad and let's have some fun. Jake, uh, why don't you tell us about the interview you did? Before we go into details, tell us about who you interviewed and what it was about. Yeah, so um, I sat down, or rather chatted with uh, Tim Kirchin, a national baseball writer from ESPN. Um, I've talked to a few folks over at ESPN over the years, uh, Carl Ravitch, Eduardo Perez, our now manager, David Ross. Um, so I'm always excited to talk to the guys from ESPN. Obviously, for our generation, um, a lot of us grew up before MLB Network was a thing. So ESPN or Baseball Tonight, those were, I mean, they were kind of the way you got your fix um, mm-hmm. outside of WGN and catching Cubs games. This was your way to really get national baseball news apart from uh, Saturday baseball on Fox, which to this day is just a, a pillar of my childhood. Yeah. But we talked, or I sat down with, with Tim and, and we talked about Kerry Wood because May holds a lot of historical significance for Kerry Wood. Obviously, Earlier this month was the anniversary of his 20 strikeout game. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also the anniversary month of his final big league appearance uh, when he came in during the Crosstown series, struck out, I believe it was Diane Viciato. It was. Uh, on a breaking ball and then got the hook to a standing ovation and his son coming out of the dugout, jumping into his arms. So. It was a perfect time to talk to Tim and kind of just look back on on the career that that Kerry put together. Yeah, you know, it was a it was a very interesting career and it was a career that while it had its ups and downs, the ups were really special. Obviously, the 20 strikeout game was one. I think a game that sometimes is not forgotten about, but I don't think gets enough credit was when Kerry Wood pitched that gem in Atlanta in the NLDS to clinch that series, their first postseason series since 1908. And I'll never forget that final strikeout. That actually happened the weekend I uh, graduated high school. So it was kind of a, a bittersweet moment as I was graduating high school that day and seeing the highlight of Kerry Wood's final pitch, a breaking ball strikeout, like you said, to Diane Vicieto. And I also will never forget him coming back to Wrigley Field as a Cleveland Indian that one time in 2009, which, by the way, during that series in 09, the Cubs beat the Indians 8-7 in 10 innings. If I don't know if you guys remember that, but kind of funny, right? Uh, but I'll never forget seeing Kerry Wood in an Indians uniform. I guess I'll ask you guys this. Outside of the 20 strikeout game, what was your guys' favorite Kerry Wood memory? Go ahead, Jake. I think for me, it's not so much one memory, but it was really just his role in the 2003 season as Mm -hmm. a whole. I remember being a kid at that point. I'm 12 years old, and I knew even then, like, hey, if Mark Pryor or Kerry Wood are on the mound, I want to watch that game. And just, you know... Watching him overpower hitters, it just, it, it's hard. You, you have guys like Garrett Cole now um, who just 
make it look effortless, but that's what Kerry Wood was. I mean, it was effortless. Um, and, and just, I couldn't help but think that whole season, like, you know, as all Cubs fans probably did, like, this is it. This is going to be the team. This is the year. Prior and Wood, it's going to happen. Uh, we all know how it ended. We don't have to go into it. But I just remember, like, that was one of, besides 98, which, I mean, I was only seven, 2003 was the first time where I'm like, holy cow, this is going to happen. Like, this is what being a Cubs fan is like. We're being rewarded. And little did we know that's not the case. But, um, yeah, just that's all I can ever think about is Wooden Pryor in 03. Adam, what about you? So mine is mine is a little weird. Uh, like I've mentioned before, it took me a little while to to get fully interested in watching baseball all the time. So my mine's kind of weird, kind of cheap. Uh, my only memory, really standout memory regarding Carrie Wood, besides the twenty strikeout game, you know, just watching in retrospect, uh, is trading him to the Chicago Cubs on MLB 09 The Show. <laughs> hey, you gotta have a memory got somewhere. Our, we got them, our right? boy back. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know what? I'll never forget was in 2008 when he was the closer, an all-star closer that year, mind you. Ironic, 34 saves that year. Um, He got the final out against the Cardinals to clinch the NL Central at Wrigley Field. He was facing Aaron Miles. He got a fly ball to Jim Edmonds, but he recorded that save. And, you know, that year he was was pretty dang good. A 326 ERA as a reliever. Those 34 saves, that was a career high, obviously. He was done being a starter by that point. Yeah. Uh, so that, for me, was a special moment. I'm sure you guys remember that. Adam, Adam, do you remember that at least? Uh-huh. Yeah, a little vaguely. Um, I I think just overall, I think Kerry Wood's reputation is, I think it's a little bit unfair the way people view him because I think a lot of people, when they, when they think of Kerry Wood, besides the 20 strikeout game, what comes to mind is that, that he burned out uh, and, you know, had some, some injury issues with the arm and everything, but you you know, it's so easy though to gloss over the fact that he played for 14 years. He did. He he was in the, he was in the league a long time and he finished with, with a great career ERA, but he, he's, he's just has this reputation, kind of the same thing going on as Mark Pryor, even though he was in the league for a long time. So sitting down and, and when I talked with Tim, actually, I was kind of surprised because the injuries that, that Kerry Wood suffered, he went to the disabled list 14 times in his career, had Tommy John at the end of 98, missed 99. Tim thinks that part of the reason why all these years later, Kerry Wood holds such a special place in Cubs fans' hearts is because of those injuries. Mm-hmm. Kerry never backed down to the challenge of, of recovering putting in his rehab work, getting back on the field. And when he was on the field, he left it all on the, on the mound. And it was that bulldog mentality that made him so endearing to Cubs fans. And I mean, to this day, I would say if you ask somebody who their all-time favorite Cub is, if it's not one of the Cubs Hall of Famers, there's a good chance Kerry Wood's the answer. Well, you know, to this day, when you go to a Cubs game, I mean, obviously not this year, but – Throughout the years, you go to Wrigley Field, you look around, you'll always see a few Kerry Wood jerseys out there. You always will. Even when they show the crowd on TV, you'll see guys in Kerry Wood jerseys. Oh, absolutely. And it's just, 
It's so interesting to me. Um, have you either of you watched the Cubs Productions documentary on Kerry Woods' 20 strikeout game? I have, yes. I never knew that the first time he felt something in his elbow was when he did that little fist pump after his 20th strikeout in that yeah. game. Yeah. Yeah, that that really caught my attention. And so, I know so, that people were nervous about that when he was pitching. So to, to to do that, that was, what, May 6th? And then he made 20 more starts from there mm-hmm. on out, 21 more starts, and pitched through it, uh, clearly knowing something probably wasn't right. Like, that type of mentality, uh, it, it's hard not to root for a guy like that. In 26 starts, that's 166 and two-thirds innings, he had 233 strikeouts. That is a 12.6 strikeouts per nine, which led all of baseball. And not only did he miss bats in that regard, he also led all of baseball in hits per nine. I want to say it was just over six hits per nine. 6.3. Like, that's, that's otherworldly. The only thing we've seen as Cubs fans on that level would have been 2015 Jake Arrieta. Yeah, exactly. Because I think Jake Arrieta was the best pitching season we've seen as Cubs fans in a very long time, um, in a very, very long time. But you look at what Kerry Wood did with that individual performance he had against the Astros and just being a 20, 21-year-old, that really caught a lot of people's attention. This was a rookie, a kid that was not legal to drink yet when he pitched his uh, 20 strikeout game while Arietta had some experience behind him and overall the numbers were better this just really this will just always stand out because of that performance and because of who he was and how old he was at the time you know there were people who would watch his delivery and they would get nervous about how we because they thought oh boy he's gonna blow out his arm he's gonna blow out his arm uh Kerry Wood was different than Mark Pryor in that respect because people were not as nervous about Mark Pryor. They thought, oh, yeah, that delivery he's got, that's going to prevent him from getting injured. We all knew that that wasn't the case. But even with all those injuries, like you said, you know, look at all the years he did pitch. So I I think that's a very valid point you made. Um, So I got to ask you this. Uh, In your interview with Tim, what were some of the things he talked about regarding the 20 strikeout game? So actually part of it that, you know, really made sense to me and stood out to me, was kind of along the lines of what you just said, that Kerry Wood, you know, when, when the Cubs drafted him and, you know, when he arrived in the big leagues, he was the next Nolan Ryan. I mm-hmm. mean, he was a young fireballer from Texas, good head on his shoulders. And one of the things that Tim said made the 20 strikeout game so impressive, besides the fact that he did it against that Houston lineup. It's one of the best lineups the Astros have ever had. The killer bees, the, the, the original killer bees. I mean, that is just an iconic lineup was the fact that he arrived to so much fanfare and so much hype and so lofty of expectations. And he not only met them in that game, but he exceeded even our wildest dreams. Mm-hmm. And it's just the pressure for whatever reason that day, did not get to him. And it's just, it's one of those things that we might never see again, as long as we live, no matter how much baseball we watch. And it's just, it's a remarkable accomplishment. And there's not, without it, Kerry Wood isn't who he is to all of us, but 
you know, what a, what a start to a career. Like you said, as young as he is, I cannot even imagine. He was shaking with nervousness just to talk on TV after that whole thing. And, you know, I can't help but wonder if some arm pain was part of that shakiness, but he didn't even realize he struck out 20 batters. If he, uh, Steve Stone had to say, well, you struck out 20, kid, in the interview after the game. And <laughs> it's it's funny. You watch that game, and unlike most games in Cubs history at Wrigley Field that were in front of 39,000-plus, there was maybe, what, 15,000 people that day? It was a very small crowd. It was during the last dance. 98, the summer, spring, summer, 98, that was during the last dance of the Chicago Bulls. And the Cubs were in a state of kind of irrelevancy in the mid to late 90s until the home run race later that year. Uh, so it wasn't really happening like it wasn't a as a big matchup that people thought was going to be special. It was just a, a regular old weekday game at Wrigley Field that people weren't really thinking as much about other than. It was just the game at Wrigley Field, and people were waiting for the Bulls to take on the Hornets later that night. Yeah, and I mean, it's just, it's one of those things that makes sports great. You never know when one of those games and one of those performances are going to happen. And, yeah. you know, it it's hard not to get romantic about baseball. Like, I don't understand people who can look at a box score and be like, what is that? That's boring. I don't like it. Or baseball takes too much time. And like, to ah. me, that's why I like baseball. Yeah. Exactly. I like, I like knowing that I can tune in on a Friday at 1.20 or go to the ballpark on a Friday at 1.20 and know that the rest of my afternoon is spoken for. Right yeah, on. It's, it's always been like, why, why are you watch? Why do you even care if you just want it to hurry along and get over with? Right. Like, why, why are you, if that's your mentality, why are you even watching in the first place? The parts of the game that I don't like that make it last longer than it used to are... Uh, you know, like now the replay system where, you know, I'm, you know, it took me a while to warm up to the idea of having replays in baseball to be able to reverse calls and stuff like that. Uh, but just the fact that every time they, they review something that it takes like 10 minutes or more, that's ridiculous. Especially when I, it's obvious. I think, I think that that needs to be a top priority of the league is speeding that process up. Far too much time is wasted watching a replay over and over and over again. And my thing is, uh, in my personal opinion, if there is a play that is that close, I think they need to have some sort of time limit on it where if they can't come to a decision in that amount of time, the call needs to just stand as it was. Give them three minutes. I don't think we can have multiple times per game where we have these really long replay breaks. I think that's that's starting to to have something to do with the waning interest of a younger demographic. I mean, I can't disagree there. I think it's it's crazy when you see a play that is completely obvious takes so long. I mean, how many times have we said he's clearly safe or he's clearly out and it's taking like 10 plus minutes? Yeah, yeah, it's it's totally unnecessary. I say you get 3 minutes and if you can't determine by three minutes, then the call's just got to stand. There should be yeah. like a timer. We have the, the pitch, the warm up clock. Put it on that. There's there's other things. There's other factors too as to to why the games are, are longer than they used to be. Uh, if you go back, you know, like on MLB Network right now, they they've been showing a lot of classic games. I mean, you you, you can see some games from the '60s, '70s, even earlier. 
you watch a lot of these games, the batters they get in, they get in and they hit, and that's it. Uh, you compare it to today, where people step out of the box and adjust their gloves after every single pitch, and sometimes they're taking you know several seconds between every single pitch to adjust and just walk around a little bit. Nobody was doing any of that, uh, in, in, you know, decades ago. And, you know, when every single batter is doing that, it adds up and it adds to the time. Yeah, that's true. I mean, think about the old days. You didn't have batting gloves, really. You didn't have shin guards, elbow guards, or helmets. You just basically, if you were in the field, you had a glove. If you were at the plate, you had a bat. That was the only difference. It just, yeah, it's, you know... Players back then, they just they went down the line and they took care of business. Uh, there's there's just a lot more unnecessary downtime today for whatever reason. Uh, I'm not really sure why, and I'm not sure it, it's kind of a conundrum because I really I don't want to see any sort of type of rule implemented to speed things up in that regard because I, I just think that that would feel a little weird and sure. kind of cheap. But I, I I also think it would. You know, it would maybe be in the best interest of the league to try to incentivize them in some way to, you know, not waste so much time. Yeah, no, I hear that. Definitely. I also think part of the reason is just today with TV, there's just more advertising. More time True. is dedicated to advertising, True. especially the playoffs. You notice the commercial breaks were longer during the World Series. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that advertising definitely has something to do with it. Uh, I think that the biggest incentive for the players to to pick up the pace a little bit is just the the very idea that a pitch clock could be introduced at some point. Because I, I've always been a, a strong proponent of keeping any sort of clock out of baseball. One of the one of the best parts of baseball, the allure of the sport, is that it's the only professional sport with no clock, and right. I've always loved that about it. And it's a, I, I just loathe the idea of there being any sort of time limit or clock in baseball. And that, that, like it that, in it, that in and of itself should be enough, you know, that should be the message to pitchers like, hey, just, just, just don't waste so much time. Pick it up just a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I can't disagree with you on any of that. I think that's all valid. And I think it's, it would be a good way to say, hey, we're not going to implement any rules, but if you want to prevent any yeah. rules that you don't like being implemented, maybe don't take as much time. You know, I, I think looking that at you, Pedro to... Baez, looking at you or my man, Steve Traxel. You guys remember him? Oh, God, how could you not? <laughs> I, I saw your I did see your tweet about potentially getting a Steve Traxel jersey, and I just want yeah. you to know that I wholeheartedly endorse that idea. Yeah, I mean, Steve Traxel, that year, 98, you know, with Kerry Wood, if people have forgotten, he brought a no-hitter into the seventh inning in the tiebreaker game in game 163 at Wrigley Field that year that got them to the playoffs. He was torture to watch because he took forever, but he had a few solid seasons with the Cubs. Quite the opposite of Kerry Wood, though. Kerry Wood was a fireballer. Steve Traxel, I don't think, threw... I, I don't remember how hard he threw, but I feel like he was one of those upper 80s guys. That seems pretty likely to me. I'm thinking he sat 87, 88. Yeah, he wasn't a big strikeout guy. But yeah, Pedro Baez is kind of the modern version of the human rain delay. Because I remember a few years ago when the Cubs 
played against him was like, oh my god, that was torture. I think it was in those postseason series where we kept matching up with the Dodgers that like it really came to light because, like you said, national postseason games are, are always a little slower, and then you have Pedro Baez out there, and it's like, good lord almighty. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, by the way, just for fun, you have Kerry Wood, who is in double digits of strikeouts per nine in his career. Steve Traxel's strikeouts per nine was 5.7. So <laughs> quite, the, quite the difference. Hey, pitch to contact. If, if you're throwing in the, in the mid to upper 80s, you know you're not blowing anyone away. So you might as well just, you know, hit your spots and look for weak contact. Yeah, Kerry Wood was uh, his career high in 2003 was 266. Steve Traxel's career high in K's was 160. Just I'll putting still, a little perspective there. I'll still take that. And something else I noticed working on this piece and after talking to Tim is if you go back outside of 98 when he won Rookie of the Year, he had the 20 strikeout game and. An addendum to said 20 strikeout games. He followed it up with a 13 strikeout performance the next night. 33 strikeouts over a 16 inning span. I believe. Is that a major league record? Because I think it is. a major league record. Yeah, that's impressive. And remind me again, where was that start at? Oh, I knew you were going to ask. It was on the road. I know that. It was on the road. Yeah. And I know. Kirkton and I talked about it because he was not at the 20 strikeout game, but he sure was at that next start. And he told me a story about it. And he said, one of the things he'll never forget about Kerry Wood is coming off the mound in the seventh. He had given up a home run and you could see from the press box, he is coming off the field, absolutely furious with himself. And at this point, we're talking about a guy who has just struck out 33 batters over two starts. So how can you, you know, you think about it, it's like, okay, what could you possibly be mad about? He was mad because I believe the Cubs had a 4 nothing lead in that inning, and he gave up a home run to Kelly Stinnett. There's a name you haven't heard, not second. But he, you know, that again, it comes back to that, just that competitiveness that Wood had. You know, he wasn't going to rest on the fact that he had a 20-strikeout game. He wanted to dominate every inning and win every inning. And it's something I think fans today might not recognize because Kerry is such a genuinely good guy. If you meet him, you would not necessarily catch on to that fiery competitiveness that he had back in his playing days. Yeah, he's a very calm, mellow guy from what I've seen. And uh, that was in Arizona, by the way, that next start. I'm looking at his overall month of May in 98. So he made five starts in that month. And he gave up six runs in 35 innings. And in just five starts, he struck out 60 batters. Good Lord, that is otherworldly. His batting average against, 158. OBP against, 259. Slugging against, 254. OPS of 513. Pretty uh, good. That'll, that'll play. That'll play. I think so, too. So going back to your interview with Tim, uh, what other things did he talk about regarding the 20 strikeout game? Before we look at the big picture, I thought we'd cover a little more of that 20 strikeout game. What really stood out to Tim was just 
the fact that obviously for Cubs fans, we might not have been or still might not be as familiar with that Houston team, but he just raved about the depth of that lineup and mm-hmm. one he, one to seven. He's in, in his mind one to seven. Any one of them could light you up easily. Sure. And if you're thinking about that, that means the nine spots, the pitcher, which was Shane Reynolds, who does not get enough credit for the game he pitched that day. He pitched very well. Yeah. Pitched very, very well. But, you know, when you've got 85% of the starting lineup that can take you deep if you make a mistake, and then to go out and uh, I think the word he looked was, or Tim used was overmatched. They just looked overmatched. And, you know, it's just, it's remarkable. that I mean, that's what stood out to Tim. And I went back and I watched the documentary in the last few weeks because I desperately need my baseball fix. I went and watched the full broadcast. And it's just the stuff is it's not like he had one good pitch. It's not like he was just blowing 98 or 99 past people. His breaking ball, in my mind, was better than his fastball. And you had Hall of Famers like Craig Biggio flailing at pitches. Mm-hmm. And you never saw Biggio take bad swings, but he looked just lost all afternoon. So I think it's something that makes what Kerry did even more impressive is the fact that he went out. And I believe Tim chose to uh, sacrifice the Detroit Tigers when saying it's one thing to go out and strike out 20 Detroit Tigers and throw a one hitter. It's an entirely different thing to do it against one of the best lineups the Houston Astros have ever had. Yeah, no kidding. And the one hit against him, Ricky Gutierrez, future Cub. It, obviously, it's a lot of debate. It was off Kevin Ory's glove. Uh, it, it, according to one of Bill James's metrics, that game was the best pitched game in the history of baseball. Obviously, whether or not you buy that metric as accurate or not is, I guess, kind of up to you. But to say it was one of the best pitched games ever, it, obviously, it was one of the all-time historic games pitched. There were no walks in that game. One scratch single, 20 strikeouts, only a few balls put in play against this great team. I'm going to ask you guys this. I need you guys to guess right now. Who led the Astros that year in home runs? Do any of you guys know? Oh, man, I'm torn between two guys. It's, oh, God. I want to say it's either Derek Bell or Moises Alou. Adam, what's your guess? I'll I'll go Alou. The answer is Moises Alou. He hit 38 home runs that year. Jeff Bagwell hit 34. And that lineup was so good. I I have no shame in saying that as a kid when I first started to get it to to watch baseball, I loved the Astros. Loved them. Obviously, you saw them play the Cubs all the time, so fine. I, I mean, if I have a second team, sure, let's go for yeah. it. See, for, um, for me, it was the Phillies. That was the, the Phillies, Phillies late 2000s teams were the, was what really kind of brought me back into baseball and got me to, to actually watch regularly. Yeah. Talk but, about, talk about a, a run of just dominance. They were yeah. so talented. And yet the Astros with that squad never won a world series. They did not. And now today, care. they are the most hated professional sports franchise around. Yep. See, I'm sorry, but if you 
or the Houston Astros. I mean, obviously nobody, I, I cannot emphasize this strongly enough. Nobody wants the current situation to play out given it's, it's, it's toll on human lives and, and everything that goes with it. Nobody wants that. But I also don't think that there are Houston Astros players who didn't have a thought thinking, wow, at least we're not going to, you know, be the league's pinata this year in a regular 162 game season. I wonder how many people will, I think the hatred and the vitriol toward them will be less when baseball is back because of everything that's transpired. Yeah, this has definitely been a big distraction. Uh, my personal opinion is that all of the, the sanctions levied against the Astros, I, I think that the, it should all be carried over uh, into next year's regular season. It, because it just, to me, it's, this feels like they're getting off easy. Because it's you know there's so much turmoil and, and everything going on right now league wide. This feels like like this is almost them getting off a little bit easier. I think that it should they should wait and it should carry over to 2021. I can't disagree with you. I'm with you on that. I I am, and you know you look at this Astros lineup in '98, you say hey. Those guys didn't need trash cans in the dugout banging. I mean, there was raw talent on those teams. It just, it's such a disappointment because I, I was a huge Jose Altuve fan. Me too. Loved the guy, loved watching him play, loved his story. And, and just now the thought that, you know, that he's a part of all this and, you know, it just, it, it shines a much different light on a lot of these guys, you know, you know Alex Bregman and all of his trash talking and, and you know maybe it, it was cool before and now it's just like dude just just shut up man just you know the 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 whole the whole allure of the cockiness and all that stuff is totally out the window now now it just it looks terrible now yeah and you got Carlos Correa too trying to backtrack everything it's yeah just it, take, it's not a good look at all just just take the L just take the L yeah, it's, honestly, I I would have more respect for for those guys if they just fessed up to it. Yeah, sure. If they didn't try to either back up what they did yeah. or try to make excuses for it or try to turn the questions back on the question askers, if they right. just said, "Look, we cheated, we did wrong, we don't expect you to forgive us, but we're not going to defend ourselves." Exactly. That would at least give me a more yeah. shred of respect. I'd, I yeah I I could I would respect them more if they yeah if they would just admit it just say yeah you know what we messed up we made a mistake we're not proud of it uh, but instead they're they've got you know all these vague petty non answers uh, for everything and it, it just it it comes across horribly and they I don't know if they realize or not that they're actually they're making things worse for themselves. Could you guys imagine imagine this right now? If the Houston Astros were doing this and they were still in the NL Central and their doing uh, resulted in hurting the Cubs winning the World Series when they did. And then we found out that this stuff was happening. Could you imagine how we would all be feeling right now as Cubs fans? Oh, God. No, no, I can't. I think that as bad as the backlash has been, it would have been so much worse if they had been playing any team that had a notable 
postseason drought that isn't such a a big market powerhouse. Right. Like, don't don't get me wrong. You know what they did is terrible, no matter who they're playing. But you know, God, I can't imagine. I mean, I don't know what I would have done if the Cubs would have lost Game Seven and sixteen as it as it played. I have sure. no idea. Um, I am one of my good friends is an Indians fan though, so I frequently remind him of how that game went out. Uh, I always invite him over. He can always always welcome in my living breathing shrine of a basement to the 2016 World Series champion Chicago Cubs. That's that's For, part of part of what makes it so frustrating and and why so many people hate them is that you you can't revise history. Uh, and there's there's plenty of Yankees fans and Dodgers fans who who just have this burning hatred for the Astros right now, and I can't blame them. Uh, but I think if you asked most people in that in those fan bases, they would not say uh, that they would want you to go back and change the results of that season uh, because you just couldn't feel good about that because it didn't happen, and you just would never feel good about that. So there's just always this mental asterisk next to the the Houston Astros that's going to be there forever, and just just the thought, you know, of what could have been if they had been playing clean is is going to frustrate those fans for the rest of their lives. An asterisk is really the most you can do because yeah. you can't go back and take away something that while it didn't happen fairly did happen unless doc Brown comes around with his uh, DeLorean, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. If doc Brown shows up with his DeLorean, the 2017 world series is a very low priority for me. I I would not, (laughs) I would not necessarily be opposed. You know, this is long past now. It's not going to happen, but I, at the time I was not opposed to them just saying, you know what? There is no world series champion in 2017. Uh, but you know, as for like the handful of Dodgers fans who came out and were like, we, we should be the world series champions of 2017. Like, could you really feel good about that though? Yeah. You got screwed over, but could you really feel good about that? Knowing that you can't look back and and actually see any wins it, it. So that would be too far. But if they just said, you know what, no World Series champion in 2017, I'd be all right with that. And it would be a great bit of baseball trivia uh, decades from now. It's kind of one of those things to me where it's like, well, you punish the person that did the crime. Unfortunately, you can't undo the crime. Right. And, you know, in some ways, you know, beyond all the punishments that have been levied against the Astros, uh, just just the you know knowing is punishment in and of itself because they honestly they kind of black soxed themselves here yeah and you know that's a world series that even though the reds didn't i mean the reds won it because the white Sox threw it the the reds didn't cheat so obviously it's a little bit of a different scenario but you know the the title was never taken away from the reds it always stood as 1919 champion cincinnati reds even though the circumstances are a little different, but you know what I mean. Right. Yeah. I just, you know, I just mean, uh, in that, you know, it's going to be impossible to look back on that squad. Right. Without immediately, you know, being reminded that they were cheaters. Right. Yeah. I mean, you look back at the 1919 world series. The only thing people are talking about are the black Sox. They're not talking about the reds. They're talking about 
the Chicago White Sox and the Black Sox scandal. It's just, and and honestly, that might just be all of those guys' reputations as as players. I mean, maybe maybe I think honestly, what it would take to change that would one of those younger guys like Correa, Bregman, maybe they get traded or signed with a different team at some point, uh, and they have a ton of success there. That's the only way that I can see that their reputations actually changing because if either of those guys spends the bulk of their career in Houston, they're forever just going to be known as the cheater guys. It's hard to change that reputation. Yeah. It really, really is. And I mean, look, if they did this, if they tried to cheat and didn't win, like let's say the 2017 Astros, let's say they lost to the Yankees in the ALCS when they were down three games to two and this came out. Yeah, they would still be scolded. Yeah, there would be bitter feelings. But I feel like more people would kind of move on from it because they didn't win the World Series or even the pennant in that case. But this team won the World Series. That's why it's elevated so much as it is, as it should be. I agree. So um, anyway, back to Tim's interview. We pretty much covered the basics of the 20 strikeout game. Jake, what other points did he make about Kerry Wood's career that really stood out to you? You know, it was just a lot of recurring themes, you know, that, that Wood was was always ready to grind and do whatever it took to help his team be successful. Um, I kind of pivoted away from Kerry a little bit toward the end of the interview, and we got on to the topic of a man who now dons the same number, John Lester. And I posed a question to Tim, feeling pretty good that I knew the answer, but regardless, went there anyway. If the Cubs were to ever retire number 34, would it be for Lester or Wood? Now, it's probably a no-brainer, and I assumed it was, because think of how few Cubs players have had their numbers retired. Lester helped bring a World Series to Chicago. Kerry Wood did not. In most fans' minds, the discussion probably stops right there. Um, but for Tim, neither of them are ever going to have their number retired at Wrigley Field, with the possible of exception of if John Lester brings not one, but two more titles to Wrigley before he retires. I think it would also depend on the age of the person you asked i have a feeling i have a feeling that if you asked a lot of people uh in their 20s they would say john lester and i think if you asked people in their 40s and 50s they would say carrie wood yeah i kind of agree with you on that one yeah uh i would i would probably agree with that um i think i think it just comes down to as much as we all love carrie uh, he, he just, you know, the injuries piled up. They kept him from being what he could have been. He knows that. We know that. Tim Kirchin knows that. Everybody knows it. Um, so I think that while we'll never see Kerry Woods number retired, I don't think in any way, shape, or form it lessens his impact on the franchise and the fan base. No, I don't think so either. And I don't see either one of their numbers getting retired either. I mean, getting your number retired is a very, very distinct honor. That is reserved for the Ernie Banks, Ron Santo, Fergie Jenkins, Greg Maddox type of players. It is a very, very, very small bunch of players. And 
most of the time, not always, but most of the time, those retired numbers are Hall of Famers. And while you could argue John Lester's borderline, we know Kerry Wood isn't going to be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, he had the talent to be, but because of the injuries and the derailments to his career, we know that's not going to happen. Um, now, what number so here, will I... Oh, I'm so sorry, if, go ahead. Yeah, so, all right, let's just play hypotheticals for a minute. We don't have real baseball, so this will have to do. Uh-huh. Say John Lester comes back and looks great in this half season, comes mm-hmm. back this off season, re-ups for three more years, and the Cubs... I don't ask me how they managed to do this. This is like dream come true world. They do win two more rings before Lester retires. And he's a part of all three of those teams. Do you retire his number then? Uh, I think that would definitely push the needle. I mean, at that point, he's a Hall of Famer to me. If he pitches yeah. for three more years yeah. and is quality enough to be in the rotation, that puts him over 200 wins. His postseason resume is nothing short of elite. I right. mean, his postseason resume is Hall of Fame worthy. Right. So now, then at, the, at that point, you're talking what? He would have four rings. He's ended two title droughts, and he's one of the best postseason performers of all time. That's different right now. Yeah. Or no, right. he'd, have, he'd have five rings because he already you, has three. Are you saying he's going to win two more? Yeah. Okay, I see. Okay, so yeah, then it would be five. Five. But, I mean, I don't think that'll happen. No. I love John Lester. He's one of my favorite Cubs players of all time. But I, I don't see <laughs> one with with how the the core's team control lines up. I don't see two more rings in the next few years happening. And, two, I just – I asked him. I was like, hey, if this was a regular year and we're playing 162 games, are the Cubs a playoff team? And he paused for, like, four seconds. <laughs> And he goes, I want you to note the pause there. I'm going to say yes, but it's not because I like the Cubs. It's because I believe the division is that weak. So it was so much. He was it's a good so way down. to put it, I think. Yeah, he was so down on the rest of the division that, like, by default, I guess the Cubs are the are going to win the division or win a wild card spot. Like, they'll get in through the weakness of their competition. Hmm. All right. As I've told Alex, I think this is the year the I think this is finally the year the Brewers take a dip. I, I, I want to say that, but I just don't know. I've been saying it for several years now, and right. they made me eat my words every year. So I, I think that if this is not the year, if the Brewers just come out slugging and they and you know they they're all muscle all year, then I'm just going to believe that that they're going to be contenders every year for the next hundred years. If it's not happening this year, as far as I'm concerned, it's never going to happen, ever. And Christian Yelich might just play for 40 seasons. <laughs> at that point, they'll just be the Milwaukee Yeliches. That's fine. Pretty much are at this point. I mean, you look at that roster, and every year we say, how the heck do they do it? The past few years, going back to 2017, the Brewers have had this ability to plug in these random guys who have career years, and then those random guys who have career years completely fizzle out the next year, but then they just replace those guys with other guys that are going to have career years. They find the diamonds in the rough, man, every single year. I don't know how they're doing it, if they're just getting lucky or if they really have the kind of scouting department that can that can find those guys. I think they got uh, great the, coaching. Yeah. And it's that, it's that Cardinal mm-hmm. voodoo magic when it comes to their pitching. 
Like, I'm yeah. sure that Adam Wainwright will retire here in a few years, and there will be some other young buck who comes up and is just Adam Wainwright for the next 15 years. I mean, it's happened Jack that way Flaherty. for the last... Jack Flaherty. I mean, you just look at the mm-hmm. the chain of the last two decades. There is always a homegrown arm atop that rotation all the time. Yep. yep. It, Cardinals, for a long time, uh, have been better in that department than the Cubs. Homegrown pitching. By far. Yep. I mean, it's not even close when you it's think just, about it. It's just a glaring weakness of the Cubs organization right now. Yeah, and it seems like when we do get that homegrown talent like Kerry Wood, they end up getting hurt. Who 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 do you guys think has had the most successful run in terms of homegrown talent by the Cubs? This means they either had to be drafted by the Cubs or signed by the Cubs internationally. Kyle Hendricks is not going to count here because he came up with the Rangers organization. So you look at the ones you've had the past, I don't know, 30 years. I mean, to me, if we're just looking at longevity and somewhat consistency, I would look at a guy like Carlos Sembrano and and say that's probably the most successful overall. I think Kerry Wood had the best stuff, and then Mark Pryor was obviously there too, but they obviously had the ups and downs in their career. So did Carlos Sembrano, but he was at least consistently on the field for a number of years. Boy, that's, that's tough. I feel like I would need some time to actually look at lists and stuff. You might be right about Zambrano because, honestly, you think about the, the best Cubs pitchers of all time, n- almost none of them started with the Cubs. The only one I could think of was Greg Maddox. Yeah, that was a and, long time ago. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, hard to, it's hard to go with him since his, his best years are with the Braves. Right, yeah, I mean, but he was grown here. Yeah, I mean, this will get me, you know, burned at the stake. But one of the names that comes to mind is somebody like a Carlos Marmol. Okay. I mean, see, don't get me wrong. It was maddening to watch. And no, I'm, no, no disrespect to Carlos Marmol, but if, if that's the guy, then I think that that really illustrates what a that, rough exactly, Cubs exactly. Have had. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Outside of Zambrano, Marmol was the name that came to mind, and that was when I took like kind of a half shuddered breath and thought, "Oh, sweet lord, this is terrible." <laughs> but you know, but yeah, it's got to be Zambrano. That that should give some people some perspective too. That this is not just. Uh, an, an issue of this era of the Cubs. This goes back a long ways. It does, because remember, Ferguson Jenkins did not start with the Cubs. Right. I believe he started with the Phillies. Mm-hmm. That is right. This would be I, interesting to dive into, though, and like really d- get deep in baseball reference and go back 30 years and say, like, hey, since 1990, these are the Cubs' best homegrown pitchers. Yeah, and just thinking off the top of my head, I think Carlos Sombrano and Kerry Wood. Yeah. I think Pryor had the most talent. But I mean, he did throw another pitch after he was 25 in the big league, so. Right, right. Exactly. I did, I I actually ran into Mark at uh, spring training this year at Dodgers camp, and the the dude is huge. I forget how big he is, but he looks like he could go and blow away hitters today. And obviously... There's a lot you can't see internally in his shoulder and his elbow and all that. I get that. But he looks good. He looks good. The Dodgers pitching coach now. And, I mean, he he was standing there talking to, you know, guys like Joe Kelly and just towering over them. 
And it just reminded me like how physically intimidating Mark Pryor was. So th- there's w- actually something that I talked about with Tim. Uh, this is one of the last nuggets I have from the interview. But one of the things we talked about is that he had countless scouts tell him that Kerry Wood is anything you could ever want in a pitching prospect as a physical specimen. Mm-hmm. Like there was no weak spots in him. He had a big league body even coming out of college. There were no concerns about his durability, his mechanics, his physique, nothing. He was just built like a horse coming out of college, and like he was the real deal. I mean, so talent evaluators, even when he was in high school and then throughout college, like that's just what he was. He was a stud from the get-go, and it's why we all believed him to be the chosen one to team up with Kerry Wood and lead us to the promised land. Yeah, no, that's... uh... It's all really good insight from Tim. And uh, was there anything else you wanted to share from him? Um, I just, the last, the last thing, and it's what I um, ended my first of two articles on, on the interview with. It was just, we chatted a little bit about like, what if given their ages, it is conceivable that one of, or both of them could have played on the team that won the world series in 2016. If they hadn't been hurt, you could have seen Kerry Wood as a middle reliever or Mark Pryor as a middle reliever in the in the dusk of their careers. And it's just, again, I just, especially with Wood, you loved him so much. That would have been unreal to see, you know, if everything else played out the same way. Game seven, it goes from, or even, yeah, you know, game seven, it goes to, Hendricks to Wood to Lester to Chapman, you know, or game five at Wrigley, the last game of the year at Wrigley, Kerry Wood closes it out. Like, it's just, it's so cool to think about what might have been. It's unfortunate with how his career ended with the injuries, but man, that would have been so cool to see. It would have been cool to see them win with them. I guess a point I would make, just just throwing this out there, uh, one thing I would say is if they had panned out the way they did, I think the course of the mid to late 2000s Cubs would have been different. And thus, everything that would have followed would have been different. Like the rebuild 100%. would have happened at the same time. Things just, it would be different. It's like you, you change one little thing anywhere, everything changes. Like, kind of like chaos. Yeah, it was, it was, again, it was just it was a cool notion to entertain. Now, oh, for sure. I totally for sure. agree with you that, you know, that decade and a half from the time Wood made his debut till the Cubs won a World Series, you know, it would have looked wildly different. Yeah. I mean, almost two decades. It would have been completely different if Pryor and Wood are both healthy. But I think they could have won a World Series earlier if they were both healthy, frankly. Yeah, and, and Tim pointed out the, the advancements that, that we've made in, you know, nutrition and training and injury prevention and injury recovery. If those injuries happen today, maybe the story with Wood and Pryor are different. Sure. Absolutely. They might've caught something earlier. They may have pitched them different. They wouldn't have been, you know, dragged out for 120 plus pitches because if you guys remember, Dusty Baker was known for doing that to them, but you know what? I mean, Jim Riggleman, when he was managing the Cubs in 98, you know, he kept Kerry Wood out there too. And he made the decision to start Kerry Wood in the playoffs, and that might not have been the best idea. 
I mean, the Cubs were never winning that series anyway, but it is the postseason and instinct is to put your best guns out there. But, you know, Wood hadn't pitched in weeks when he made that start against the Braves. He didn't do bad, but, you know, he had Tommy John surgery right after that. Yeah, I mean, at, at that point, Riggleman knew something wasn't right. Um, but again, we don't know the story. Kerry might have told him, I'm good to go. Let's do yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, just knowing his personality, that very well could have happened. I mean, and, and Riggleman could have said, like, look, it's your call. If you think you can do it, go for it. But well, yeah, and it's like yeah. you said back then, it was probably a little different than today. They would have done more evaluations. Oh, I mean, it, it all comes down to money. The money in pitchers today is so different than it was then. That, right. You know, any blip on the radar is enough to shut a guy down. Back then, it was still to a degree, rub some dirt on it, pitch through it, or skip this start, you're making your next one in 10 days, something like that. Pretty sure Nolan Ryan had, like, torn muscles all up his shoulder and elbow, and he was still going out there throwing. A different era, to be sure. Different kind of competitor, too. (laughs) Absolutely. All right, well, guys, that is just about going to do it here on Climbing the Ivy this episode. Adam, thanks as always for being my co-host. And Jake, thank you so much for coming on. We love having you on the show. Thank you for sharing this interview with Tim. And a reminder, you could check out that full interview with Tim and other Cubby's Crib things at cubbyscrib.com. You could also check them out on Facebook and Twitter. Also, you could check out this podcast on iTunes.com. Until next time, he's Adam, he's Jake, I'm Alex. Have a great night. Thanks for listening.